You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to the Young Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're with us today. I'm Clay Maynard, and I'm here with my co-host, Josh Johnson. We're young leaders in ministry. We love the church, and we're excited about gospel-shaped ministry. We try to bring a fresh perspective on issues based on God's word. What's up, Josh? Not a lot, man. It's been an interesting day. I uh, got one of my teeth filled today, so that's a lot of fun. Nice. No, no, not fun at all. I'm not here for that. But yeah, just uh, hanging out. And tonight we have a special guest. We're hanging out tonight with uh, Josh Tice, all the way from Las Vegas. What's going on, Josh? How are you tonight? Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really glad to be here. Love you guys. I love getting to know you at a recent Idea Network event. And now the opportunity of being in this place, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Speaking of which, Pastor Josh Tice, uh, he's the pastor of Southern Hills Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, he just referenced the Idea Summit. Um, the Idea Network, um, that's a ministry for ministry leaders uh, to help them network, to help them share ideas, and to help us do with excellence what we all care about, which is spread the gospel um, and build our churches. And we, Josh, you and I just had yeah, it was a the good opportunity time too, yeah. to go out there. And man, we had so much fun. Um, Josh, could you talk a little I'm going to have to be careful. I'm saying Josh all the time. <laughs> Call me Tice. Tice. That's good. Well, there I was going to say, you could call me Dr. Johnson because I've got like six or seven honorary doctorates. So that's what you can call me. <laughs> we'll do both. You know, I've told my friend Ermler, um, I have to call him Ermler because his name too is Josh. I told my friend Ermler way back when we were high schoolers, he always said, are you going to ever get your doctorate? And I said, yes, when you start a Bible college and give me one. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, we just went to this event and it was amazing. The the speakers, the the teachers, the music, the fellowship, the networking, uh, all of it was was awesome. It's something that I've, uh, is an event unlike anything I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say I met people that I couldn't have imagined meeting that are, that have be, slowly become friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to meet people I was looking forward to meeting. Uh, there's the, the teaching there was, was phenomenal. It was a huge event. There was almost 400 ministry leaders in that room. Was that the big? Talk a little bit about that of the event that yeah. you put on, the other events you do around the country, and and was that? I mean, was that one of the biggest ones you've ever had, or is that just normal? I mean, that was an awesome event. Yeah, it sure was. It was a lot of fun. Um, Idea Network is a network for ministry leaders, as you said, pastors, evangelists, youth pastors, uh, missionaries, ministry leaders of all kind, and the network is designed to share ideas. We create virtual and real world uh, environments to share collaborative, what we call collaborative brainstorming moments. So a lot of that is round table based. A lot of that is um, discussion based. Uh, We say it's like this, grab a yellow pad and begin to brainstorm an idea. Now bring your closest friend in and keep brainstorming. Now bring five people that think similarly. How about a group of 25 in a round table? That is exactly what we're talking about. So we throw out a topic and we really discuss it uh, for an hour and come up with the greatest ideas that we've seen play out in life and ministry. So uh, we do that in virtual, like I said, virtual roundtables, as well as real world experiences such as Idea Days, which are regional events. There's two of them coming up in 2022 in the spring, uh, one in Chicago and one in Tampa. And then we do it by Idea Nights. Idea Nights um, are smaller venues that happen all over the country. There's going to be probably 60, 70 locations this September. Wow. Uh, that has maybe 10 pastors at each place in one location. So, hmm. you know, 60 locations, 10 pastors, there'll be over 600 ministry leaders, part of that one this, this fall. And then the summit happens every two years. The summit is the largest of our events. And that's what you came to here in Las Vegas. Um, and we have a keynote speaker. It's a whole, almost a whole two day of event. In fact, this next year, 
Uh, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to reveal this, but back in 2023, there's going to be a lot more to that hmm. and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. It's going to be great. I, uh, I know that I went to the assimilation and retention session and we have already started using here some of the things I picked up on in that session. And we have had several guests come back because of the, some of the ideas that I picked up on at idea summit. So I can attest from a firsthand experience, the ideas that you get are excellent ideas that you can take and plug into your context wherever you are at. Well, Josh, you, you touching on one core concept or one core value of ours, and then Clay did on the other core value. Our core values really have, surround two things. Number one, fresh ideas. Number two, real friendship. Fresh ideas is what we're going for. So we've been to a lot of pastors' conferences where um, there's great preaching, and we need great preaching, and there's some great sessions uh, but what we do is we turn the sessions into not one person standing in front of a row of 50 people, but 50 people sitting in a circle. We see the best ideas come from the community. We want to get those ideas and gather those ideas. As long as they're well moderated, and this is where many conferences will fail, as long as well moderated, you can get a lot of great ideas uh, flowing in a community like that. So number one, it really is about collaborative brainstorming, getting the right ideas. The other one that Clay mentioned is the friendships. We're all about making true, authentic, real relationships. This is core to who I am as a person. I'm very concerned for ministry leaders. I think isolation is a major problem, which you addressed specifically just a few episodes ago with uh, my pal, Kurt. Um, isolation is a problem. And with isolation being the problem it is, we as ministry leaders, think we believe it's our responsibility at the Idea Network to bring ministry leaders together and uh, cultivate an environment where true, authentic, genuine friendships can truly blossom and bloom. So that uh, honestly, to be blunt, men stop falling out of ministry, killing themselves and hurting people. Mm. Um, friendships, friendship is where it's at. Something I really appreciated about the summit is there's like no pretense there at all. Uh, I've been to some other pastors conferences where not trying to like throw shade or anything, but it feels kind of stuffy. and you're almost like, I have to be on my best behavior here. Everyone's watching me. Do I know, like, what are these people going to say? I felt like at Idea Summit, you're just hanging out with your buddies and you're just going to have a, a conversation with them. You're going to walk away making some new friends and no one is judging anyone. It's like, I hate to do this to you, Josh, but it's like the planet fitness of conferences. It's a judgment-free <laughs> zone. <laughs> Well, you know, he's, I love it. I, we're going to put that as our title from now on. The awesome. Of conferences. Some marketing, free marketing, free marketing from Dr. Johnson over here. There you go. Well, the, he says that it is interesting. One of the things I've experienced at conferences too is, is this feeling that there's this disconnect between the true experts and everybody else. You're just lucky to be in the room kind of thing. And I did feel lucky to be in the room because there was so much good content, but I didn't feel that, that distance that I had sometimes felt at other uh, at other things. And again, I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm just saying that one of the things I loved, I actually, we had just interviewed uh, Carrie Schmidt for the podcast. Mm -hmm. It was our second ever episode. It actually launched that, that episode dropped the day, the Monday of the summit. And I saw Carrie out of my peripheral vision the day that we were there on Monday. And I heard him say a few, as a few minutes go by, he says, hang on one second. I got to go talk to Clay. And it's just so crazy here. He's the keynote speaker. He's, he's coming to find me. He wants to connect with me. And I just, when he was talking about not having pretense and there not being this air of superiority or this hierarchy or anything like that, it wasn't about posturing and it wasn't about um, feeling like you had to earn your place or anything yeah. like that. There's just that genuine love and that genuine desire to see each other grow and to be uh, mutually benefited in the gospel and in the encouragement uh, of one another. And I just loved the, that mm -hmm. feeling that was there. Yep. Yeah, it's a real informalism that we're attempting to go for. By the way, interestingly enough, we talk about Baptist history here. Um, one of the things that was pushed against in a major way uh, in the 1950s through the 1960s in Baptist circles as a whole was, was a push against anti-formalism. Um, in fact, you can go back to issues of like the sword of the Lord, and they'll say um, soul winning, fundamental, anti-formal, or uh, against formalism. And what they were pushing back against was the um, the rise of uh, or 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 the the mainline denominational churches that had a, a liturgy, a formalism, a very seriousness to them. 
Um, and what's been fascinating is the introduction to that formalism in a very major way in the late 80s, 90s, and aughts within some Baptist circles trying to regain a formalism um, with a lot of pretentiousness along with it. But I, I agree, there just needs to be a, 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 a commonality. I remember the very first year when we had, a, had an actual registration for an idea day. Um, we strategically had a conversation where we said, well, what do we call each other? And I'm like, what do you mean? On the name badges, what do we call it? Like Dr. So-and-so, brother so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. And I remember having this conversation with Steve Miller and he's like, let's just call them by their first name. They're all people. If Paul was Paul, then I guess Josh could be Josh. And I'm like, sure. great point. Let's do that. And that, <laughs> I think that small little thing, I think did help establish the culture of Idea Day a little bit. That's awesome. Well, Josh, we wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty, where if you haven't listened to our previous episode, go back and listen to it where we define it and we kind of take you on a little bit of a journey uh, through what historically Baptists have uh, believed and said about it, what the Bible teaches about it and why it's important. Today, we kind of want to dig in a little bit more practically uh, with Tice today <laughs> and talk about it. So, uh, individual soul liberty is this idea, just to recap, that in matters of faith, every person has the liberty to choose what conscience dictates is right and is responsible to no one but God for that decision. It comes from the verse in Romans chapter 14, which says, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So Josh, the first question we had for you was, you know, what has been your experience in ministry up to this point with this topic of individual soul liberty, whether it's with you know healthy environments or unhealthy environments, talk a little bit about your experience with the importance of this doctrine. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think there's a major problem that we have as ministers immediately the moment we begin evangelizing. We lead people to Jesus Christ, and um, and if they have not a Christian background or if they don't understand even cultural Christianity. Uh, they have nowhere to begin. They have no idea what to do next, right? So somebody repents and receives Christ as Savior, and they're going home to their girlfriend, and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna smoke a joint that night, like they did the night before, and and um, they're going to, um, you know, like Josh does every night, um, <laughs> and <we're> gonna, <laughs> and they're going. And they're going to go get up the next morning, and uh, you know, he's got a pornography addiction. And, uh, and she likes to go gambling and you've got just all these issues inside of these new believers. And I think what happens naturally is that somebody who loves that soul that has been saved begins realizing, okay, there's a lot of potential pitfalls in your, in your life. First thing you've got to do is you got to get married. Like, what are you doing? You know, stop having sex with this girl and get married. And then secondly, you know, stop, stop the drugs. And thirdly, you know, you need that at some point, stop getting drunk. So maybe you should stop drinking and and so we begin to, without realizing it, setting up a legalistic standard of rules for this individual because we're so concerned that this new believer in Jesus Christ doesn't get hurt or doesn't hurt themselves. So I believe a lot of what takes place as it relates to legalism, or I should say the, um, the, the, the eradication of individual soul liberty begins where a good, healthy lover of people has won somebody to Jesus Christ. And then the person is genuinely lost now, having been saved, and they think, what do I do next? And you're like, this is what you do. And you begin to tell them all these things to do. And instead of relying upon um, the working of the Holy Spirit in the person's life, we begin to outline uh, rules for them that will take them from weeks of their salvation into months and years of their salvation. And then eventually, we become the sole arbiter of what is right and wrong in their life. Mm -hmm. And we eradicate any kind of um, allegiance to the Holy Spirit or reliance eventually upon even the Holy Scripture. One of the things that as I've studied this doctrine, I've started to feel like it of the distinctives, it, it might be one of the most forgotten Baptist doctrines. You don't really hear it talked about very much. And maybe it's wonky to talk about Baptist distinctives in, in, in the average church. I don't know. But as we studied it, it, it seemed to me that the idea of your conscience, because the New Testament talks a lot about your conscience, and it talks about, Paul talks about his own conscience, how he acts within the, the realm of a clean conscience, and he wants to have a clear conscience before God and before others. And there's talk about an unhealthy conscience, one that's, one that's seared, one that's um, 
a conscience that's defiled, he says in one place. And there's this emphasis on having a healthy conscience. And to what you're talking about, a new believer gets saved. And instead of trying to get the Holy Spirit to change this person's conscience, to give him a clear conscience, to, to bring that conscience in line with God's word and turn it into a healthy mechanism that the Holy Spirit can now work with. This person's conscience can now respond directly to the Holy Spirit. We bypass the Holy Spirit and we bypass the conscience and we just say, you can use mine. Yeah. And I'll yeah. tell you. And to your point, it, it becomes really problematic because it stunts that person's spiritual growth. It might look really good quicker on the front end when this person magically, it seems, looks better, talks better, acts better, does all these things, but we've not enabled them to pursue spiritual growth on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well stated. I, I agree. Um, I, I, I think we front load at the beginning with very, very practical, pragmatic rules. And we say, okay, if you do all of these things, you're going to be doing okay. You're going to protect yourself. And I think that's the original goal. If, if you go back to the original rabbinical tradition that the Pharisees had, they had a, a set of fences. Um, in fact, if you talk to rabbis today, I have several friends that are good friends that are rabbis in Las Vegas that we've developed a Bible study with, that we just have grown together and known each other ever since a trip to Israel. We got to know each other. And they describe exactly what you see in the ancient rabbinical tradition, and that is fences. And that is where the law is a cliff. You want to keep the sheep from falling off the cliff. The best way to keep them from falling off the cliff is to build fences far away from the cliff. Now, those fences are not necessarily the laws of God, but they protect the sheep from going anywhere near the cliff. It comes from an altruistic heart. It comes from a point of view that says, we don't want you to get even close to falling off the cliff, so we're going to fence you in. Here's the problem with that. Well, the problems are so obvious, are they not? Hmm. The New Testament isn't fence-like. It's not filled with these thou shalt nots and thou shalts. In fact, Paul is very clear that the law of God was meant to be a taskmaster, a schoolmaster, a a, a teacher to bring us to the point where we said we cannot keep the law. Because we cannot keep the law, we need a savior. But we, we have such a bent toward religiosity. We have such a bent toward rules, especially for those that we genuinely care about. We start setting up these fences and our illustrations, uh, even in our preaching, uh, take on that form. I used to preach this. I used to talk about um, uh, you're in a uh, you're, you're going to hire a, uh, uh, a carriage driver. You ever heard this illustration? And as you're going to hire this carriage driver that's going to take your daughter, the princess, up and down the mountain every day, you want to ask the carriage driver, how close can you get the carriage to the cliff before it falls over? How close can you get the carriage to the cliff before it falls over? And, uh, and the first guy says, man, I can get it three feet away. The second guy says, I can get it one foot away. And the third guy says, why would I want to go anywhere near the cliff? I'm going to stay as cl- far away from the cliff as possible. And then you preach and say, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to stay as far away from the cliff as mm-hmm. possible. And, and all of that is there as a heart of a preacher because you love the people and you want them to stay as far away from breaking some sort of um, law as possible. And in doing so, we set up then standards and then we say, okay, then the standard here is if you cross this line, that fence, you're eventually never going to fall over the real law of God and do so begin to trap people, enslave people. So what is the solution? Uh, that's what I guess we're going to talk about. Which as we're kind of talking through this, it's made, it's made me think maybe we've looked at our, the way we are discipling people in the wrong way instead of encouraging people to develop their spiritual disciplines of the of prayer of deep bible study we like you've said we're laying a checklist out and saying okay after 10 weeks you go through this program and now you're a disciple of Christ and you'll have you'll look according to this way and you'll do according to these things and then we let them go out from this discipleship quote and we wonder, you know, well, they've got it all together. Like, look at them. We have a, a healthy Christian here when really we've never taught them. Well, this is how you should study the word. This is how you should pray. And truthfully, those are the, those are the things that are going to transform their life and help them have that relationship with the Holy Spirit to help them see, you know, maybe I shouldn't 
be smoking pot on the weekends. Not because Pastor Josh told me not to, but because, well, the Holy Spirit convicted me. And, and in my prayer time and my Bible reading, the Lord brought me to this place. And I don't know, maybe we're not seeing that because the discipleship I've been involved in, it's very measurable. And you can't really measure what spiritual disciplines are doing in people right away. And I think that might be our hesitation, why we don't, when we disciple people, we like to throw the list out because we can say, you know, pull out our measuring stick. Yep, looks good. Instead of saying, you know, are you diving deeper in your relationship with Christ by developing your spiritual disciplines with them? Well, I, I know the right answer to this is Second Corinthians three eighteen. It's beholding the glory of Christ that transforms us from glory to glory, you know, into the likeness of his son. I know that's the right answer is that it's be, it's, it's, it's taking a new believer and, and teaching them to fall in love with Christ and get close to Jesus that transforms their heart. And I, I know that takes time and we know that, you know, there's always that other side of me. And I, and I, I just wanted to throw this to you, um, Josh, do you think there is some usefulness with a new believer in saying, Hey, I'm going to give you a little bit to borrow here. This is some things that we do and this is important, but, but maybe marrying that too, I want to, I want you to grow too so that you understand why, or do you think it's dangerous on the outset to bother with that at all? Are we, is that a pragmatic um, image focused way of doing discipleship at, entirely? Should, is there anything we can give to a new believer that says, Hey, just trust me on this. And as we go along, I'm going to teach you why. Or should we, from the beginning, yeah. just be abandoning that 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 question. pragmatic philosophy? You're talking about spiritual disciplines, this the traditional spiritual disciplines of community, right? Small group, church, reading your Bible, praying, fasting. I, I think you can easily sit down with a new convert, which is one of the things we do in our membership classes, and brief those things and say these are several seven things that are called spiritual disciplines. Now, many of these things are going to seem crazy and out there to you. They're going to be, you're going to feel, you feel like a, a new recruited monk who's arrived at the top of a mountain. That's what you feel like. And we're telling you about these things. It's okay that you don't fully understand them. We just want you to know that they're there. And we're going to teach you how these proper spiritual disciplines work. Um, but we like to go back to, and it's interesting, you're going through the Baptist distinctives. We did this for years in our membership class because they really are helpful. I mean, this is the Young Baptist podcast. So as you walk through the Baptist distinctives, I think we begin with biblical authority, and it is primarily the very first thing that we teach mm -hmm. disciples. Yeah. Um, and that is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? So anytime we have an opportunity and somebody says, I have a question. Uh, what about it? What about if I sin again after getting saved? Well, that's a good question. What does the Bible say? And then we'll go to the scripture uh, that says uh, in Titus three, verse five, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so what did you do to get saved? Nothing. What do you do to keep yourself saved? Nothing. So we constantly go back to the Bible. Mm. So when people ask um, questions or, or you want to make or prove a point or, or thought, go to the scripture. Now, the problem comes when we already have a preference or a desire for them. But lo and behold, darn it, we can't find a Bible verse to back it up. <laughs> right. So traditionally what Baptists have done is we try to find a verse and take it out of context and twist it to mean what we want it to mean. This, Clay, is foreboden. This is damnable. Uh, in fact, Revelation chapter 21 very clearly says, do not add to the words of this book. So it's a very, very damning thing. We do this all the time as Baptists. We like to say, I really want this to be true for you. So therefore, here's a Bible verse. And then we take it out of context. So instead, this is what we teach our people. We say, the Bible will tell you the truth. But where the Holy Scripture is silent, the Holy Spirit will bring specificity mm. for you. So we want you to become reliant upon the Holy Scripture. And then one day you're going to be like, what does the Bible say about marijuana? And our answer is going to be like, the Bible says nothing about marijuana. And then what does that mean? Well, the answer to that is you better talk to the Holy Spirit about that, which is so scary, especially <laughs> if you actually care about this convert. Yeah. You're like, what if the Holy Spirit tells him to, you know? And so, <laughs> so you have to then trust not only the Holy Scripture, but the Holy Spirit. 
Baptists have a have have not as good of a time trusting the Holy Spirit as we do the Holy Scripture, because mm. we like it black and white, right? Mm. Just yeah. like my I have a lot of good Assembly of God friends. They have a hard time trusting the black and white of Scripture more than they do the Holy Spirit, and they're actually both gifts from God, the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And so what we say again, where the Holy Scripture is silent, the Holy Spirit will be specific, but then we always add, will be specific for you. Romans chapter 14 is where that conversation goes. Mm -hmm. Well said. It's not surprise. shouldn't surprise us what we're talking about. If we don't do that, if we don't teach them that proper relationship between the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we don't teach them how to pursue a relationship with Christ for a healthy conscience. It shouldn't surprise us later when they're not in that exact environment anymore. Maybe they move, maybe the church changes, maybe some, it's a new pastor, who knows what happens, but maybe they're, but when their environment changes and then they completely change because they don't, they're not discerning these things for themselves. They, they don't have that healthy relationship for the scripture and the Holy Spirit for themselves. They were just responding to that environment. They were borrowing everything they were doing from somebody else's conscience. And when those people are gone, you know, I've heard people say, ah, ever, you see these people when they're out of the environment, they immediately change everything about the way they're doing things. Well, that's not an indictment necessarily on the person. That's more of an indictment on the environment. Sure. Because the environment didn't disciple them properly or they, or they, first of all, would have allowed them to be an individual within the environment. But secondly, they wouldn't, if they had a healthy, good relationship with God, now it's possible they just got away from the Lord and that's why they're changing. But it's also possible that people that leave a church or that go, end up having to move or whatever, they change even though they're still a committed, faithful Christian. And that's because possibly they were more, they were more receptive of the environment for their mm. discretion. They, they weren't, they weren't com committed to that relationship with the Holy Spirit to have that discernment on their own. And Maybe that's their own fault, but it's very possible that our churches have not done a very good job discipling in this area. Mm. And so that's, I think that's where a lot of the problem lies. Mm. Josh, could you talk for a few seconds? What do you say to somebody who says, why would the Holy Spirit tell me something different than he tells somebody else? And then, oh, and, then if, and then if I could follow that up with a second, well, maybe I should let you answer that first, but there's, there's a second one, which is this. I've heard this said. What's wrong with a church saying, hey, if we buy, you know, that Matthew passage that says, if we bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven and that's given to the local church. Maybe our local church just, uh, just binds this particular issue. Could you respond to, those are two common arguments I've heard. I'd love to hear your response to that. Yeah, the second one I've never heard. That is absolutely crazy talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's that's uh, uh, God bless you if you're listening and you use that argument. I have used even crazier arguments. Okay, so you're among friends here. I have said some crazy, some crazy stuff, but that's crazy. Um, that's not the context of that passage at all. However, we can go back to that if you want. The first question I'm really interested in. Um, Sorry, the second one was so odd, it, it threw me. The first question was... What was the first question? The first question was, why would the Holy Spirit say something different to somebody else than, oh, he's, yeah. than he's saying to me? I think that's a really legitimate question, as opposed to the second one. Um, <laughs> I do think it's a very good question. And, and the answer I, can be given in multiple, multiple ways. First of all, I would say, if I was talking to a pastor, I've had this conversation with many pastors, I would say, um, how is it that you came to pastor in Cleveland, Ohio? Where's the Bible verse? I remember hearing in Bible college one time a preacher say, if you're called to pastor in Hawaii, you better have a Bible verse that backs that up. And I'm like, I've heard geez, that. you know, like, I don't even remember the passage that the Bible even talks about Hawaii or even Polynesia as a whole. Like, where, where, where is that? And so we'll find this, you know, you know, you're called to Hawaii. So these poor seminary students, they're searching the scripture for some random verse that talks about islands. And they're like, that's my Bible verse for Hawaii. And you're like, baloney, bull, like, that's not what's happening here. And so we actually, I think, really hurt the doctrine of, of uh, uh, sole authority of scripture by by changing what the scripture is actually that's not what the bible is actually saying so let's find a bible verse to you don't need a bible verse for that you've got the holy spirit for that the reason you ended up in cleveland ohio is because the bible says preach the gospel to every creature hmm. and at some point the holy spirit of god said to you hey hey jack 
you're supposed to go to Cleveland. And you're like, yeah, I need to. Yes, I will. And then some preacher said, find a Bible verse for it. And you're like, okay, where does the Bible talk about the Browns or the Indians? Okay, the Browns and the Indians. I'm, I'm called the Cleveland. So no, you don't need a scripture to tell you to go to Cleveland, Ohio. The same reason I didn't need a scripture to tell me to go to Las Vegas. The Holy Spirit of God called me here and said, Josh, Las Vegas, and said to some guy named Jack, go to Cleveland. And the Holy Spirit of God can speak different to us, even though the scripture tells all of us preach the gospel everywhere. The Holy Spirit of God brings specificity to you. So where the Holy Scripture is silent, the Holy Spirit of God brings specificity for you. It's a great answer. That's good. Yeah. And I, I've used this illustration to others before. You were using the analogy of the cliff earlier. And it's it's a perfect analogy for what for what we're talking about. You know, the falling off the cliff being sin. We're falling into sin. And the the argument being made we should stay as far from it as possible. While we all agree with that, where we where we build our fence can be different. Because the sin is not where you place the fence. The sin is the cliff. The sin is the sin. The problem becomes when we start drawing arbitrary lines on the on the ground and saying, if you're past my line, you're in sin. Well, no, actually, the, the sin is the cliff. As long Correct. as we're not over there. Now, if we're just trying to get as close to it as possible, that's sin in itself, right? To, to, to sit there and try to play with sin. But, um, but where we draw that line is, is something that the Holy Spirit um, speaks to each one individually about, like you said, where the scripture is silent. We're not talking about where the Bible's clear. We're not talking about where there's the words of God in, in black and white. We're talking about issues the scripture doesn't speak to. Um, and so I, I, I've used this analogy on the cliff for some, and that is maybe the cliff is certain cliffs are more slick for some than others. And so certain people, because of their particular uh, sin habits in the past, perhaps because of their personality and nature, they have to be more careful in some places than other people feel the need to be. And so they're, they're just naturally a little bit more gun shy on certain issues. And maybe the Holy Spirit does convict them very deeply about a specific issue to be very careful on because that's what they need. And I, I know I have children. I have three children. When, when I've had this conversation before, when somebody says, how, do you, how can you say the Holy Spirit is speaking to you differently than he's speaking to me? My answer to that is, well, because the Holy Spirit's my father and the Holy Spirit's your father, and fathers don't handle all of their children the same way. And I know I'm messing with some Trinitarian doctrine here. We understand that it's one God. I'm saying God, God is a father and he leads each of his children differently. I have multiple children. They have different needs. They have different temperaments, different personalities. And I, so I have to father them slightly differently. The main rules are still the main rules for all of them. I'm not going to change them. But how I apply those rules and, and, the, and the applications do vary somewhat because each of those children have different needs. And, and I, I just think it makes sense that God would treat his children that way. Yeah, I'd like to come back to this concept of, of the Holy Spirit too, because sometimes I think we blame on the Holy Spirit what is simply a seared conscience. Um, and, I, and I'd love to talk about that in, in just a moment, but you talk about how do you protect people and the illustration of uh, the Holy Spirit speaking differently to different people within the same environment. We had this issue in Las Vegas because of the casinos. Um, you'll never meet somebody who hates gambling more than I do. And the reason is, is because by far more than it, most people you'll meet, I've had to sit in the room where a man or a woman has to explain to me that they don't have mortgage money and they mm. don't have grocery money because they spent it all down at the casino. I've had to do that. I have, I have, there's nobody listening to this podcast that has had to do more counseling as it relates to gambling addiction than I've done unless my father or mother happen to be listening to this episode. I know what I'm talking about here. And I don't like it when people say that I'm soft on sin, especially like sin, uh, especially on things like gambling. They'll be like, what do you call gambling a sin? And the answer is, for some it is. See, what do you mean for some it is? For some, they are disobeying the Holy Spirit when they go gamble. You say, well, what about the scripture? The Bible never says scripture. Scripturally, the Bible never says anything against gambling. In fact, um, say, so, oh, the Bible says, um, he that hath the, uh, an evil eye desireth to be rich. Uh, okay, that's a nice stretch, but that, that, that's no different than your investment in, um, in the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. So gambling is not condoned as a sin in scripture. However, gambling can be condoned as a script, or excuse me, attacked as a sin by the Holy Spirit for you. 
or someone else. That may not be true for everybody in the church at Las Vegas, but it is true for a lot. And so um, we have to be really clear on that. You've got some guy who spent his entire life up in Minnesota and he retires to Las Vegas at the age of 60 and he's so glad that he's not in the cold anymore. And once a month they go down with 150 bucks and they put it in the slot machines. All right, that's him. You say, what are you gonna do about that? What do you mean, what am I gonna do about it? What's the Holy Spirit gonna do about it? Maybe the Holy Spirit needs to talk to him because that's not my job. If the Bible said something as the pastor, I would go and I would show him what the Bible has to say about it. Bible doesn't say anything about it. Now there are people in our church who will not only not go downtown and spend 150 bucks at the slot machines, there's some people in our church who won't go downtown at all, Clay, just like you were saying. Why won't they go downtown? Because of their life experience, because the Holy Spirit's been really clear with them. You don't go down there. The Holy Spirit doesn't even have to explain it to them. (laughs) They know why. They've been down there. They know that life. They know the ease it is to fall back into that trap. I mean, when you have a church that has former dancers and former prostitutes and former drug dealers, and um, uh, I mean, that's the lifestyle. There's certain people that you don't ask them when they say, oh, no, no, we're not going to go downtown with you guys. No, we're not going to go see the show with the rest of the church. No, we're not going to we're not going to do these things. We understand exactly why, because um, the Holy Spirit has been very clear with them. They are not to do those things. And if they were to do those things, it would be a sin for them. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's sin for the guy from Wisconsin who's going to go down there and do what he's going to do. Yeah. What did Paul say? One man esteems the day above the other. Uh, I'm going to totally butcher it, but he says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind um, because he's going to stand before verse five says specifically, he's going to stand before his master to his own master. He's going to stand or fall. And then who are we to judge another man, man's servant? How can we say, how dare you go to the casino? And then, or the casino person say, how dare you stay away? There's nothing wrong with it. The answer is you don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in each Mm -hmm. other's lives on these issues. If God wanted to address it specifically, he would have done so in the scripture. And then if he wants to address it even more specifically, he has a mode to do that. Mm -hmm. Jesus said about it in the upper room, I have to leave because it's not good for you that I stay because I'd have to send him to you. And so he sent him to us, but we say, well, he's not relevant. I need him to inspire a piece of paper. And that will be the only thing that I listen to. And Christ sent the Holy Spirit to give us the scripture and then to indwell us and guide us where the scripture is silent. Yeah, that's great stuff. It, this goes back to all the distinctives are kind of tied together. Biblical authority or true belief in biblical authority believes in the sufficiency of scripture, which means if God didn't say it, it's not because he forgot to say it. And we need to add to that. And it does take a, a real understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and a trust in the ministry of the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. Josh, you said it earlier. We tend to trust, a lot of Baptist circles tend to trust the ministry of the scripture more than we do the Holy Spirit. And that's a, that's a, we don't need to have a false balance about it, though they're both so important and we've got to, we've got to trust both yeah. and allow God to be God and allow, and realize the people in our church and the people that we love and our brothers and sisters, our new disciples and converts, they're God's kids and he's going to take good care of them. So Josh, why do you think Baptist churches in the last few decades seem to have pretty much practically forgotten this distinctive the of individual soul liberty? Well, that's a good question. I, I think it begins with, I think it really does begin with altruism, love for the convert. Um, I like to believe the positive of people. I think people really don't want their converts to hurt themselves. The second thing I think is because they themselves had not been taught it. That's the problem. When you when you look at somebody who is in their 50s and even 60s right now, the previous generation was not emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit as much as they were the work of the Holy Scripture. And so it was a dogmatic, you do this because I tell you to do this and don't you dare question me. Well, with that kind of a spirit, what we're seeing repeated in that generation Um, and then to the third and the fourth generation, we're beginning to repeat it. And that is, um, you do it because I said so rather than, okay, what does the Bible say? And what does the Holy spirit say? So I think it's number one altruism. I think there's a desire to protect the flock. There's a desire to protect the new convert. And then secondly, I believe it's because that's what they had been taught. Um, are there more nefarious characters? Sure. Are there manipulation and, and 
tactics that are desiring for power and control? Absolutely. That's definitely the case. But I would say that those, in my opinion, I would say those are the outliers and the majority of people, this is what they were taught and they really, really want to protect people. The problem is they're protecting them like the government's trying to protect us. I think, there are, I think there are nefarious people in politics. I think there are nefarious people that are all about power and control. But the reality is on both sides, I think most of these people get into this saying, I just want to help people. And the best way to help you is to lie to you. And the best way to help you is to control you. And the best way to help you is to lock you in your homes. I think there's a lot of altruism to this, um, to this ability to stay home, stay safe, and make sure that you um, don't have an opinion because your opinion could get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is there's no freedom there. Just like here, there's no individual soul liberty because liberty is very, very, very dangerous and really is only safe for the elite, really only good for us. I've heard pastors say that. I've heard leaders of Christian organizations say that, look, we're the shepherds. We need to tell the flock where they are on these issues. They're sheep for a reason. We are the shepherds. The problem with that is we are not. We are the under shepherds. Mm -hmm. The good shepherd has given us the Holy Spirit of God, and the good shepherd has given us Holy Scripture. And we need to teach them the Scripture and the Spirit and not treat them the way that we don't want the government to be treating us. There's something to be said. I believe it was G.K. Chesterfield who said that some of the most difficult regimes to topple are the ones who do it with the approval of their own conscience. They really do believe what they're doing mm. is what's best for people. And, and, and I think it's important you make that distinction because the intent is not to demonize those, the, demonize those individuals as bad people, but those ill-placed um, tactics can cause all kinds of problems and it can lead to some of the abuses you're, you know, we're talking about. So more nefarious people actually see those environments and are drawn to them because it, it, it actually attracts that kind of toxic person. They say, oh, wow, look at the kind of influence I can control. I get to tell all these people what the Bible is teaching. I get to, to take liberties with scriptures that weren't designed to be taught the way that I'm teaching them. And so whereas you maybe initially have a lot of really good-hearted people saying, hey, I'm just going to tell these people how to live a sanctified life. What it ends up doing is, is drawing people to that position of authority who don't have those good intentions. And so you end up with a church who all of a sudden, further down the road, they're looking around saying, what in the world happened here? And, and, and why is this so toxic? And why is this so restrictive? And why is there no freedom? And what is wrong with this guy, you know, running people over? Well, it, it possibly, it's very likely didn't start that way. Um, which is all the more reason why understanding good Bible doctrine like this is so important. Absolutely. And why our Baptist forefathers went out of their way to say Bible distinction or biblical authority. Um, I know you've heard this before. It's been said on multiple podcasts in different formats. But all that is happening right now in the Baptist circles across the board that is so frustrating to previous generations is simply... um, is simply the natural result of what has been taught to us. And that is, number one, first and foremost, biblical authority, what does the Bible say? So you teach generation after generation after generation of Baptists, regardless of what comes after this statement. The first thing you say is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Just trust the Bible no matter what. What's going to naturally result from that? The answer is they're going to read the Bible and say, man, they're, you know, this, we're right here, we're right here, but we're wrong there. Mm-hmm. And so what you've got is an entire generation of uh, pastors um, that are looking and saying, look, I, I do trust the Bible. That's why I don't trust what I was told on this issue, that issue, and the other. Um, and it continues to this day. You have a very serious conversation going on right now um, among a lot of ministers and a lot of lay people, a lot of Christians in our churches looking around and and starting to really believe in the priesthood of the believer, starting to really believe in individual soul liberty. And I think there's a big pushback just against the expression of individual soul liberty. I think you're seeing an expression of individual soul liberty, which really, it really jives well with the the American ideal, very individualistic. But there's a pushback that says, which that, but the pushback to me ignores individual soul liberty and even ignores priesthood of the believer because what it says is, I have special access to God. You need to listen to me. Which is, which, is a, which is false. It's not true. Mm. You know, Josh, you're a pastor. Uh, my good co-host also, Josh, is, a, is an assistant here at Fellowship. You guys know when you became a pastor, you didn't wake up the next morning like, 
oh my goodness, I'm receiving all this downloaded data from God that I just wasn't receiving before now that I have this position of authority in the church. That's not what happens. And so oftentimes pastors can be very close to God compared to a lot of other people, but it's because the nature of their job encourages them, them to be spiritual in a way and, they're, and, and it's, it's advantageous to them to do, they chose that profession, God called them to that profession um, to serve the church in that way. And so they, they are very, they're pursuing the things of God on a regular basis, but this is not something that's denied to the, act, to the regular church member. It's not. And so if you actually believe a big part of individual soul liberty is understanding that you approach God directly and priesthood emphasizes this too, yeah. that under the high, great high priest that we have, we're all one level priest. There's nobody with special access. If we actually believe that, um, then this pushback against the expression of individual soul liberty doesn't make sense. Uh, it's okay for, for ministers to see people express that soul liberty differently and say, hey, you know what? There's no scripture against this. And, and if he's disobeying the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit, encourage them through community and through discipleship to listen to the Holy Spirit. And whether they do or don't, they're going to stand before God for that one day. And that's not, that's not on me. I'm just going to keep delivering the word of God and encouraging people in their relationship with God and with, with, and, and with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do if you're a pastor and you felt like you were looking at a congregation that had all these boxes checked and to you that meant it looked very sanctified. And now it's looking a lot less sanctified in your, in your fleshly eyes. But this, the expression of individual soul liberty, so long as people are remaining faithful to the best of their ability to Christ, and they're not violating the tenets of scripture, we have to, we have to loosen our hand a little bit. Don't you think? I mean, I, I just, I know that my experience is, I'll admit, a microcosm of Christianity, much uh, the Baptist, microcosm of Baptist world, much less Christianity as, at large. But this is true all over the place. And that is, you have to, there, there's this element of control. This, this idea that, man, I just want what's good for you so much. I think I want it for you more than you want it for you. Please just do what I'm saying. And yeah. like you've said multiple times, it's altruistic. You want the best for people, but we just have to be very careful with it. My brother calls it helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting <laughs> as a man who worked with teenagers for 15 years, my brother, he said there's certain parents that they just are constantly hovering over their children. Um, the problem with those helicopter parents, by the time they leave high school, uh, the child doesn't know how to do anything for mm -hmm. themselves. I think there are pastors who love their people so much. They feel like they've got a helicopter over them constantly to the point where it's like, don't even make a decision about buying a car until you consult me. And the answer is eventually that person's going to be without you. They need to become a man of God for themselves or a woman of God for herself. And the best thing to do is, is in, uh, empower them with the same thing God gave you, the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit. So Josh, since God is the Lord of the conscience, how do you handle somebody in your church? Maybe it's a member, maybe it's, it's even a church leader who's very persuaded in their mind on something that, that it's a right or wrong issue, um, where others in the church, maybe even other leaders, don't, don't see it scripturally clear. What can a church do to keep that, to, keep that to, to help that person allow others to experience freedom? And Awesome. And how, yeah, and how do you keep that legalistic mentality from, from spreading? Because it does yeah, seem to, awesome. it does seem to sometimes you've maybe experienced this. It kind of tends to attract certain people, and so people can get sucked into these little, uh, in these, into these little groups that that think certain ways and all that kind of stuff. How do you keep that from happening? Yeah, I I think I think a lot of tone can help with this. Um, if you have a tendency to be very very rigid and serious, and and um, and I think you're going to have a harder time with this um, than if you can train yourself to be a little bit more laid back and smile when people come in and they'll say things like, pastor, you realize all of these people are putting up Christmas trees in the church and in their homes and they're bowing down. And the Bible says in the old Testament that they cut down a tree and they bow down and worship them. That's Christmas. And Santa Claus, if you rearrange letters, <laughs> fill out Satan. And uh, these people, they're so sweet. They're so sweet. They really believe this. And I, I have, I've had that every year for, for, 15 years. Halloween, the same thing every year for 15 years, you know, don't you know the pagan and understanding number one, I think this, if you're asking what I do, 
I first of all put myself in their shoes and I, I try to be empathetic to what they're going through. This is maybe the first time they ever saw that YouTube video. And for many of them, that's the extent of their academic experience, YouTube. And so like they've done the research and Halloween <laughs> is like Satan's going to come get your children. And they're very sincere. And so to smile and be like, oh, yeah, what video did you see? Oh, where did you read that? Oh, I got you. Okay. No, I totally get it. And I had an old businessman tell me this years ago. I buried him and he's in heaven. But he told me this. He's brilliant. He was a brilliant man. Very good mentor to me. He, he worked for IBM. And he said, Josh, he said, if you say something like this, he said, you know, I totally understand what you're saying. I used to feel exactly the same way, but this is what I've learned. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've used that. You know, I think I understand what you're saying. You know, I used to feel the same way. This is what I've learned. That has helped push back on so many of these issues. Pastor, everybody around here selling, celebrating Halloween and we need to celebrate Reformation Day. And then somebody else, Pastor, that guy's celebrating Reformation Day. Baptists aren't, uh, aren't Protestants anyway. And everybody's got an opinion about everybody else. And for me, I kind of sit back and I smile and I say, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. You know, I've used to feel exactly the same way. But th this is what I learned. And then I'll tell them a few things. And then I say, but look, here's the thing. Since the Bible doesn't say anything about Halloween, doesn't say anything about Christmas trees, and that passage is out of context. I don't know if you know that, but that has nothing to do with that. <laughs> the best yes. thing that you could possibly do is go to Romans chapter 14. And let's walk through Romans chapter 14. So I'll walk through Romans chapter 14. And then I, I give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll look at them and say, I know to you, you're really concerned because you don't want these children um, pulled in to occultic practices. And I've got to tell you, that is not what's going on here. What might be going on is the Holy Spirit of God is protecting you and your family from something maybe that God doesn't want you involved with. According to this passage, it would be sin for them to, for you to demand they don't celebrate just as much as it is sin for them to invite you over and make you celebrate this holiday. So we've done that when it comes to um, tattoos and we've done that when it comes to um, uh, alcohol. And we've done that when it comes to all sorts of things that people will, will become clothing and choices and all these things people become extremely dogmatic in. Um, and so we allow people to be dogmatic for what the Holy Spirit has said for them but they need to be able to state very clearly, I don't go to Blue Man Group. And the reason I don't go to Blue Man Group downtown is because for me, being in that environment, walking through the casino is a trigger. Mm. Uh, but I understand that you can do that. And we teach them. And I, I even in counseling, I don't, I, I think it's helpful. I, I tell them, can you say that to me? Try that, saying that to me. Okay, yeah, I'll say it. Okay. I don't go to Blue Man Group downtown because it can trigger me to mess up in some stuff. and. And I, I don't want to waste my paycheck again. Yeah, exactly. And then say the next part. And I understand that other people do, and that's okay because they don't have the same triggers. Yeah, yeah. I said, what is that? Well, that's the Holy Spirit telling me I better stay away. Exactly. So you'll follow the Holy Spirit. And by the way, then I'll tell them, guys, I'll tell them this. Hey, don't be surprised if five, 10 years from now, the Holy Spirit might change that rule for you because you'll have grown stronger in that area. And, um, and so uh, this is the way we train our church. And I preach and teach that. I have to preach and teach that a lot here in Las Vegas because ultra ultra sinners have a real tendency to become ultra real uh, uh, um, legalistic mm. once they get saved. Yeah. yeah, Josh, you said a couple of things there that are that are really good. And it it first you mentioned something that's so important, and that is that just as much as somebody that's you know enjoying freedom in Christ doesn't want somebody who has stricter rules around their life going and in, in nosing into their business and telling them whatever. It's just as important that we have grace with people who do have those rules. It's just important that we don't try to force people. You know, he talks about that stumbling block. You, I don't need everybody to, to feel the freedom to do what I do. As much as I may enjoy certain things, I have to have the free, I have to give other people the freedom to listen to the Holy Spirit too. And, and if they feel very strongly that they shouldn't be doing something, who am I to sit there and say, the Bible doesn't say that and whatever, like who you, we've got to learn to let people and like you even talked about it too. While you just focus on what God wants in your life, what you end up doing is you allow churches to be somewhat diverse in this. Not every Christian does everything exactly the same way. Just like Romans 14 describes one's not despising the other because they do eat. One's not uh, despising the other because they don't 
there's there's that um, that mutual love. There's that respect for individual soul liberty. But as you said, as you enjoy your freedom in Christ, you might be surprised down the line where other Christians start to grow in their freedom in Christ. As God strengthens them, you know, he actually refers to um, one as the, that person as the weaker brother. They've got that, that temptation, um, that slippery area in their life. And they've, maybe they'll grow at some point and they actually will grow to experience more freedom and give them that space and allow the Holy Spirit to be their guide um, on both sides of that fence. And Josh, you, you're talking about that's something that you've ministered. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on for this particular topic, because you minister yeah. in, in an area that, uh, that, that this is a constant thing. But the truth is, all of our churches really should be revisiting this doctrine, I believe, more often than we do, where we respect each other and we give each other the right to believe, to exercise freedom of conscience, because God is the Lord of the conscience. And Truthfully, Josh, you've you've helped me in this area b- before we even had ever met each other. I remember reading your blog a long time ago and seeing some ideas out there that I struggled with. <laughs> and I remember at the time being like, I had this attitude toward Josh Tice, like, you know, he says some good stuff, but you know, I don't think I don't think all that stuff's you know good. I, I he says a few good things, but you know, I don't go for everything he's saying on there. I had that sort of attitude and approach. What's wild is as I as I grew in my faith and as I grew in my walk with Christ and and studied things out for myself and was listening to the Holy Spirit and searching God's word, I found more freedom over time. And then I found myself when people approached me about those issues, using some of the things I read in your blog <laughs> and saying, well, you know, I know you feel that way, but this is something that I, like you were saying, I, I know how you feel. It's that feel felt found. I, I know how you feel. I once felt the exact same way. This is something that I found. And just being gracious about it, allowing people to be different from you, being willing though to have those conversations that aren't high temperature conversations. Let's let's take each other a little less, let's take ourselves a little less seriously. Take God really serious. Take God's word really serious. Take ourselves way less serious and give people freedom and have gracious, beneficial, edifying conversations one with another. I I guess, you know, then this leads me to say, you know, I've I've made a pretty firm stand here on the podcast. And I want to, I want to clear this up with you guys tonight and with all of our listeners, you know, uh, it's a sin to me to drink nasty, terrible coffee, but (laughs) I understand that it is not a sin for everyone and that you guys have that liberty in that area. So I'm glad to see that Josh is growing. I'm growing in grace, I guess. Yeah, I have the freedom. I'm glad you came to that. I'm glad you came to that because that's that's what I was waiting for this entire this whole thing is more of an intervention, Josh. Because <laughs> well, you have worked. become extremely judgmental about your coffee selection. <laughs> we understand your palate is so much better than the rest of ours. But for those of us who can still grab a cup of burnt Starbucks, oh, bitter no. as it is, and drink it and enjoy it, pal, you've got to be patient with us. Uh, hey, that drink at the burnt beans, drink it to the Lord, Josh. <laughs> He's learning this. He's learning yes, this. Yes, I, I grew in grace tonight, and I'm, I'm so thankful for this episode and this wonderful intervention. Well, Josh, before we, before we sign off tonight, we like to ask our, each of our guests that come on the show uh, for a couple book recommendations, what you're reading right now or what you have read in the past that you would encourage our audience to get a copy of and to read through as soon as they can. Yeah, absolutely. The number one book I would recommend is a book called The Quest for Friendship. Uh, it just recently came out. <laughs> yeah, and I just want a uh, copy of that book. That? Yeah, how Josh won a- for self promotion. Yeah, Josh won a copy of your book, by the way, on I Twitter. I did. Yeah, I saw that. That's awesome. Man. I'm glad I didn't purchase it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's that? I missed that. What? I said I'm glad I didn't purchase it yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's terrible, not Josh. Your audience in that way. We're not going to do it with too many more contests. You're going to have right. to go out and buy it now, folks. <laughs> no, the Quest for Friendship is a book that I just finished writing, um, and it's available at the Idea. It's the, it's an Idea Network store in our merch store. It's available there. You can go and pick it up at Idea Network dot church forward slash store. Um, it'll be available on Amazon actually, and uh, by the end of the month, uh, beginning of May. Yeah, beginning of May and uh, available on Kindle and all of those kind of places. But if you want the book immediately, you can get it at the Idea Network uh, store. Um, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun putting it together. Awesome. Would you have any other books that you would recommend to You're our guests? You're looking for real book recommendations. <laughs> hey, that is a real book recommendation. And we're thankful for that. Oh, golly. Um, boy, Everything and Anything by C.S. Lewis. Um, 
has has been revolutionary for me. I've spent a lot of time with him lately, um, as well as uh, if if your student if your your audience has never read Lectures to My Students by Spurgeon, your mind your it's going to be blown, right? I know that all of us had to read broad swaths of that in college, and we kind of skimmed through it so we could check. Yes, I read it. But when you go back and read it after having been in ministry for a while, it is absolutely one of the most relevant books for pastors um, and, and especially young Baptist pastors, because it is written by one of the greatest Baptist pastors to young Baptist pastors. And I think it's still extremely relevant 200 years later. Absolutely. I'm reading through that this year, kind of here yeah. and there. And man, that book, every time I pick it up, I'm thinking he could have written this yesterday. There is so much good stuff in there. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I want to second uh, your book, The Quest for Friendship. I picked it up uh, as soon as it was available, pretty much. I think the, a day or two after it was available. I'm about halfway through the book. Um, it is a great blend. I just, if I could endorse this for just a moment. Uh, Josh, <laughs> I have been very passionate about this subject for a long time. And maybe my co-host Josh can, can, could affirm that for you. We've had a lot of conversations about what friendship should look like. Mm-hmm. And God has taught me through my, I'm just 30 now, but I, through my 20s, I feel like I got a crash course on friendship. Pitfalls, traps, successes, and everything in between. And I've come out at 30 years old and, and, and I just have some amazing people in my life. And it's thanks, thanks be to God for that. When you, when you can find three or four people that, that are just the real deal, they're there for you. Uh, they're big moments, little moments, in-between moments. They'll confront you in love. You can talk to them plainly and openly in love. You can just be yourself. All of those amazing things about what a real friend should be. You can trust them. They're, they'll keep your confidence. Um, you know, if you have two, th- two to three of those people, you are a rich man in friendship. And your book really gets into the, it's both, both very biblical and yet very practical. It's very nuts and bolts too. How do you find friends? How do you keep friends? What do you do with bad friends? It's really practical. It's a book that I've thought many times, somebody needs to write this book. Somebody needs to write this book. Like there's more, there's more deep theological books out there maybe on friendship and on those kind of relationships. But this is such a practical gift to the church. And I, I encourage all of our listeners to go out. Most people do not have, this is the friendship is the one relationship that just falls by the wayside with, with, with modern Americans, especially. We're so busy and our t- schedules are so tied up that you have your romantic relationship because that's how we keep the species going. We're going to, we're going to keep that one. So we, we focus on that romantic relationship. We're not leaving that one behind. And, and then we focus on all these business relationships. We have our family and we have our romance and we have all these business relationships that makes our life work. It's our civic relationships. But what we, and, and then the last one is the friendship. And that's just the one we don't have time for. You got to make time for your mm-hmm. friends. You got to make time to build and maintain and have good friends. Um, and Josh, this book has been uh, an encouragement to me. Uh, that it's been written, a, a reminder of some important things I've learned, uh, more detail and more instruction and more wisdom on things that I want to get better at. And so I just want to uh, say thanks for writing it. And I've enjoyed it. I've been blessed by it. And I encourage our audience to get it as well. That's very nice of you guys to say. Yeah, Josh, by the way, I I talked for a lot longer than the 30 seconds about your book that we agreed to. So I'm going to need you to make that paycheck a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a very wealthy man at this point. <laughs> it's all those books, all those books they've been selling almost over a thousand. I yeah, love it whenever a, I look at these book titles and they're like over 1 million sold. And I'm like, I have a thousand. <laughs> Josh, you just described very how we, you just described exactly how we feel about our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. We see the number we just actually <laughs> crossed. We crossed 10,000 downloads not very long ago. And we were so excited. I mean, we thought maybe there might be 50 people. If 50 people had listened to this podcast, we'd be like, yeah, that's our crew. That's our tribe. Let's go. You're talking about tribes in your book. That's our tribe. Let's go. Uh, no, man, it's been, it, we're just so blessed that, that I know you feel the same way, you know, when people that buy anybody your book. wants to listen. Yeah. That anybody wants to listen at all. I mean, it really is just very, very cool. Guys, the fact that God has given us a platform to advance his name, nothing could be better. Amen. Amen to that. Well, Josh, do you want to, uh, it's been so great to have you, man. Thank you so much again for coming on. Absolutely. And, uh, maybe, maybe we space for us to do something again in the future. Would you mind closing us in a word of prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for what Clay is doing here with Josh and 
what Josh is doing here with Clay, their friendship, being able to come together for the sole purpose of advancing your name and advancing the truth of the gospel with their audience. Lord, I thank you for our Baptist heritage, and I thank you for the young Baptists that are listening to this podcast who desire to continue to advance the name of Jesus Christ and understand the biblical Baptist distinctives. I pray that you would continue to bless every member of this audience today. I pray they would take the truths that were stated today, the things that are right, and ignore everything that was that was not. I pray that those things that are scriptural would just blossom in the hearts of every hearer. Every single thing that comes from your Holy Spirit would genuinely impact our own minds, hearts, and conscience. And anything that is just flax and fluff would just fade away. Thank you for this chance to speak to these people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? The gospel means freedom. Mm. Well, there it is. There it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast.